This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. There is a refugee crisis in Canada's largest city, and the shockingly sad scenes have been playing out day after day, night after night, on the streets of Toronto. Hundreds of refugees have been forced to live on the sidewalk near an intake centre in the downtown core because there was no shelter space available for them. These are individuals. They are human beings who fled turmoil and persecution in their home countries and are seeking asylum here in Canada. Mohamed Faki and other community leaders to the rescue. Faki is the philanthropic founder of Paramount Fine Foods. He stepped in, he stepped up, and once again made a difference in the lives of those in desperate need. Mohamed, thank you so much for joining us. So what does it feel like to leave your homeland only to end up being homeless on the streets of a major city in a very rich country? What does it feel like? Uh Thank you very much for having me. And, you know, I always love to be on your show because, you know, I have so much respect for what you do. Uh, it feels very disappointing. Uh, it feels like you, you, you second guess yourself above and beyond the fear. When you leave your country, you leave your family, you live with the promises, even if you do not make those promises. But one of the refugees that I met on Peter Street showed me the picture of his children and his wife. And he promised them that he'd be able to pay for a school. And he was worried that the time for payment of the school is coming closer. And he doesn't, he's not sure he's going to be able to make it. It broke my heart. Yeah. And we were walking me and him towards my car because I wanted to listen to him more. And that's how it feels. It feels that they're gonna, they were doubting their decision above and beyond leaving the family and the weight of that on their heart. It made them doubt that they did the right thing. And along with a lot of great people that they started much before me to pay attention to this uh, particular issue and cause, you know, uh, everyone wanted to help them. Everyone wanted to change the way they're thinking about our Canadian dream and the promise that Canada makes. And we wanted to as well, most importantly, we wanted to help them as a human, but as well, it's us, it's Canada. It's our reputation, the great reputation of being the best country on earth and very welcoming. And treat them equally at least from other refugees that we brought to this country. We have had a great experience with the Ukrainian refugees, and that's we should be proud of. And we had a great experience with the Syrian refugees. We should be able to have a know-how book by now. But how come we let this one go that way? Mm. And it was about the government level and sending each other a message. You don't send each other a message by putting a human being, a human being on the street pregnant women sleeping on our walkway. Canadians, all of us, are disappointed of the way government level were sending each other a message and the community did step in. And I have to say, I'm very excited to see how amazing, amazing work was done by the leaders of the black community, people on the ground, foundation, organization. I will never be able to take the credit from them. They're amazing. They've done a great work. But, you know, you did what you always do. You do not hesitate. You step in and you offer help. When you first heard about the refugee crisis playing out on the streets of Toronto, what was your first reaction? What What did you do? What did you think? Uh, we have heard of it. We were looking at it and we were communicating with Lorraine, which is one of the heroes as well. And, you know, uh, Diane as well, like a lot of heroes on the streets that they do great work. And Cheryl and uh, 
so I heard about it and we were coordinating to send food because what I heard, some people are sending wrong food, a lot of food, sometimes no food. So we wanted to really come in at the time where we can be helpful. Because when you get involved in charitable organizations and you get involved into feeding the poor, every penny is a responsibility to be used the right way. Because if you don't give it to the right people when they need it, you could give it to someone else because there are a lot of people who need it in our city. A lot of people are homeless. The refugee crisis is separate and independent and does not take away from us looking after our homeless or our responsibility, people confusing that online sometimes. And so we were sending food at the right time and everything. But Sunday, I was around the area that was safe from the Middle East. And I heard my team on one of the WhatsApp groups saying we're delivering today to the refugee on Peter Street. And I'm like, I'm three minutes away. I'm going to show up personally. And that's how it started. I showed up there personally. And, um, and I, as soon as I stepped out of the car, people recognized my face and they said, thank you for the food. We really appreciate it. We need some help to get a roof above their head. So there was apparently in the background, a lot of work. People were trying to get a roof above their head. So all what I said to them, look, I don't know if a place can host that many people, but I'm happy to pay for it if you find it. I'm happy to pledge the money. Let's all together look for a place to try to find it. And that was that, that was my pledge right there and then. And then I started talking to the refugee because I want to understand how they got here. A lot of them came through the airport. So I'm like, okay. So they came through the airport. They claim asylum seekers. So what's the problem? <laughs> They didn't crawl from the border the way we make them look like a danger. A human being uh, coming to build a better life, they'll never be a danger to our society. Refugees, asylum seekers are not looking for a handout. They're looking for a handout. I'm one of them. I'm one like them. I came here like them. They're, I'm not better than them. And we can all stand by them. And these people could be better than me one day in this country. And you and so many other community leaders, you banded together and and were able to find them, these wonderful refugees who've had a, just a terrible, terrible time since they arrived in Canada, some shelter and, and some things that we take for granted, like the ability to have a shower and a good meal and, and a roof over their heads. That has taken place, but it's temporary. Mohammed Faki, what are you prepared to do next in order to to secure their safety and and a future for them in Canada? Uh, thank you. I mean, uh, as far as my concern, I think uh, from day one, I said what I was prepared to do initially, which is fundraise for them and pledge the twenty thousand dollars, and I have already made the donation to the church, I, we're doing it in pieces because they said as needed basis. So anything they're telling me, I'm doing it and I will do more this week. Uh, above and beyond that, I already am in communication with a lot of them. I would say over 11 of them. Um, uh, I would love to actually talk to them about their future, uh, see how can we help them on the second part of the settlement and advocating, advocacy. We made it much louder the last three, four days. And as well, the government was prepared. Look, government, a lot of good people are working in the government. A lot of people are politicians that they are good people. They want to do the right thing. But they need sometimes the encouragement of being watched. They need us to send a message that we're watching you and we're demanding that you protect our reputation and our Canadian dream. 
and me and you understand and know very well, and I know you. Canada won't be the same in 15 years. We will not be able to serve our seniors if we close our doors. What we need to do, like Hazel McCallion said, we need to do our homework. While we bring people in because we need them, we need to provide for them an opportunity, and we need to bring them in with dignity. So other people that have skills would want to come to Canada because Canada needs them. In 15 years, we will not have nurses, we will not have doctors, we will not, unless we open those doors. But we need to make sure that we treat them well when they arrive. And I'm ready to do whatever it takes. Like I'm, 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 I'm ready. I just want to help them. And I will never take it away, honestly. And please, and allow me, because this is very important for me. Like, like Revival Time Tabernacle, the, the church, hundreds strong that they send the buses, stand united, the Black Community Housing Advisory Table, Rwandan Canadian Healing Center, African Center for Refugees, Margaret Housing, which is Cheryl and Diana, and Black North Initiative. So what, when you see all these people coming together to help the community, when you see all these organizations and all these individuals that they have worked for weeks and weeks before I arrived, uh, and before I even got attention to this, I, I mean, before doing more than the food, I, we've done the food, but we wanted to do more when we realized it. You know, that shows that us as a community, we can welcome them properly. And we look, we look what we provided to the Ukra Ukrainian refugees and what we've done with the Syrian refugee. We've done it. We can do it again. As simple as that. If the community has the will, even when the government limp. We actually can make it happen, jump in and do it. And I'm always going to be prepared to do that. And I have made a promise around 20 years ago. Canadian has smiled and gave me an opportunity. And for that, forever I will serve our cities and our country when I have the chance. Mohamed Faki, thank you so much for all you do. And thank you for leading the way. Thank you so much. I was working behind a lot of many, many great people. And thank you very much for all what you do. And I really appreciate it. The province of Ontario launched a program last week that offers free job training for newcomers. Here to explain is the Minister of Labour, Immigration, Training and Skills Development, Monty McNaughton. Welcome to the show. Good to have you back with us. Well, Anne, always great to be back on with you and your listeners. I'm going to pull something out of your title, Immigration. All eyes are on Canada right now, in particular the GTA, when it comes to immigration and, and refugees and its shelter. What is your ministry prepared to do in order to move the situation forward in a positive way? Well, certainly I was glad to see the federal government and the municipalities, in particular the City of Toronto, come to an agreement uh, this past week uh, to help with the housing situation. Um, my role as the Minister of um, Labour, Immigration, Training and Skills Development is to really ensure that when newcomers come to Ontario, uh, they're able to get the training for jobs that are going unfilled. Um, and we're really working hard to knock down barriers so those you know, skilled workers from other countries can come here and start working right away. So that's really my focus. Thus, the announcement a week ago about the program offering free job training for newcomers. That's interesting. And it's for newcomers who have studied and trained and maybe even practiced in particular skill sets and, and job uh, areas. Is that correct? 
Yes, so this latest announcement um, of the government to uh, invest um, $2.6 million to train hundreds of uh, refugees and newcomers is really focused on giving them work experience in Canada. So, for example, one of the projects we partnered uh, with a group called Matthew House, and they are giving participants on the job training because a lot of employers when newcomers come to Ontario ask what is your Canadian work experience Um, so we're really focused on practical skills writing resumes uh, job interview questions and then really setting people up for jobs in manufacturing, uh, the skilled trades, finance, uh, healthcare, administration so that's what these uh, projects are really focused on. You also offer paid internships, or at least you connect with those who can offer this, job placements, language training, and digital literacy courses. How important is that aspect of job training? Really important. Um, the great thing is we're seeing uh, so many small and medium-sized businesses stepping up to um, hire newcomers and really give them a chance. Um Today in Ontario, the biggest economic issue we're facing, in my opinion, is that over 300,000 jobs are going unfilled. So we really do have uh, a labour shortage. Uh, Immigration is one tool that we can use strategically to uh, fill these labour shortages. We're also, you know, training people that are on social assistance that are here uh, for jobs and and women and um, Indigenous people. So it really is this all-hands-on-deck approach to filling labour shortages. This most recent announcement is to help those newcomers, primarily those from Ukraine, uh, to get jobs that are in demand and really to set them up for success here. I want to do the math here. Your government is investing $2.6 million into this project, and that will help 300 newcomers. Uh, How does that work? Why is it so expensive? Well, training uh, is expensive. Um, To date, we've funded 600 different training projects across the province for for all types of different projects, the skilled trades for young people, uh, skilled trades for Indigenous peoples in Northern Ontario. This is uh, one of those training projects. We've now uh, trained over half a million workers, uh, but it is a big investment. We've invested to date uh, about $700 million, uh, but we are seeing a lot of progress. I mean, during uh, the pandemic, uh, at one point, 400,000 jobs were going unfilled. We have it down to about 300,000, which is really good. And on the apprenticeship side, uh, we've had a record increase in apprenticeship registrations in Ontario. About 27,000 more people have joined uh, the skilled trades in the last 12 months. So we are seeing a, a return on investment, but it's mission critical that we lift people up so they can get uh, bigger paychecks and, and better jobs. You mentioned Matthew House in Ottawa. There's also Toronto Artscape, Newcomer Women's Services Toronto and others. How were those groups chosen to be a part of this initiative? Well, they applied. I mean, the Skills Development Fund is our signature uh, training uh, funding uh, through the province of Ontario. Uh, Newcomer Women's Services Toronto is uh, a great example. Uh, We've partnered with them in the past. Um, They're going to uh, provide about 200 newcomers with training to prepare them for meaningful careers in fields such as human resources, finance, um, IT support, and healthcare uh, management. 
And we know that a lot of Ukrainian refugees, for example, that are coming here are uh, women. So that's one of the reasons why we selected um, this group is because they're focusing on those women and female refugees that are coming here. So again, we go out and we ask for innovative training solutions and um, we pick the best ones that, that apply. Ontario, it is my understanding, welcomes more immigrants than any other province. And according to research, helping internationally trained newcomers work in professions that they studied for could increase Ontario's GDP by up to $100 billion over the next five years. Let's put aside those statistics. Let's talk about the importance of having a job that you're trained for, that you're comfortable in, and that you're good at psychologically and emotionally when you are a, a recent immigrant. Well, you know, we are really focusing on bringing in uh, skilled immigrants to fill uh, labor shortages, but it's all about setting them up for success. I mean, we've all heard stories of uh, engineers and architects and uh, healthcare workers driving Uber. I mean, they shouldn't be driving Uber. They should be working in fields that they've studied. Um, Our government under uh, Premier Ford, we were the first in the country uh, to ban Canadian work experience requirement. So a lot of these regulatory bodies uh, require uh, immigrants to have three to five years of Canadian work experience before they can even write their exams to be to have their credentials recognized. So we've eliminated that barrier, which is going to help, for example, with the engineers. There's 7,000 shortages in Ontario today in the engineering profession. So this is going to help a lot of immigrants that came here uh, trained as uh, an engineer. Um, but it's about ensuring that they have success when they come to Ontario and can contribute to the economy, but most importantly, support their family. You know, our great country, our nation, Canada, has been built on the hard work of 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 immigrants, and it's been supported by immigration. Why is it important to show our respect to those who who either have to flee their home countries in order to to find solace here, or they choose to come here to find a better life? Why do we have? Should we treat them with respect? Well, we need a strong immigration system to build the future of our country. You're right, our our country was built on uh, immigrants. I mean, all of us came from somewhere uh, at one point or another, and it's important that we set them up for success when they come here so they can contribute to the economy as quickly as possible. One of the issues uh, recently that we've seen is that uh, the federal government brought in um, a number of newcomers and they weren't able... Uh, to have their documentation to be able to start working right away. That's one of the things I press the federal government because we want to get newcomers into a training program or, if they're already trained, to get them working as quickly as possible. Um, it's, it's better for the entire you know, country, but again, it's, it's best for those newcomers. So, uh, again, we need skilled workers. We have a huge labor shortage, and we need to focus on bringing in uh, newcomers that have the skills to, to grow our economy. Minister of Labor, Immigration, Training and Skills Development, Monty McNaughton, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Well, Anne, great being back with you and your listeners, and have a wonderful rest of the summer. And you as well. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up after the break, the increase in workplace stress. Do you have a story idea for the feed? 
Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. A new poll suggests more Canadian employees are experiencing workplace stress. Kevin Frankish now with that story. Workplace stress has always been a big health concern, but in these days of what's known as the shadow pandemic, a staggering increase in mental health issues has made workplace stress exponentially more concerning. A new survey from the Robert Walters Group finds that the majority of respondents, 60%, report suffering some sort of workplace stress. Many say their employer isn't doing enough about it. Martin Fox from Robert Walters joins me right now to talk about uh, the findings of this survey. Hi, Martin. Hi, Kevin. So this is, um, it's concerning, but it's not surprising, is it, Martin? Uh, I suppose so. I think that uh, we all know this is something that's been existing for forever, but it's really come into the limelight in 2013 in this kind of post-pandemic uh, work environment we're all in. So tell me about this this first stat here. 60% report suffering some sort of workplace stress. Yeah, um, so that was the kind of biggest headline number from this survey. Um, and keep in mind, this is from, you know, quote-unquote white-collar professionals, so mainly, you know, office professional workers. Um, and I believe this is something that has um, been thrown into the, the limelight again from the return to work kind of trends that have come out of, of 2021 and 2022. Um, so we have this kind of situation of um, employers being, employees being forced back to work in some way, shape or form, um, higher interest rates, uh, higher cost of living, and uh, an underlying kind of concern around job stability. So I think all of those things coming together has made this um, become a, a big issue again. I think the the other big headline that comes out of this is that uh, many are saying they just don't feel that their employer is supporting them. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, despite from from the employer side, you know, many people scratching their heads here because um, you know employers in Canada have spent, I think, uh, over twenty percent more since the pandemic on on this topic. Uh, can kind of broken down to four hundred and six hundred dollars per employee on mm -hmm. wellness in initiatives and benefits every year. Um, but still, yes, you're right. Uh, people do not feel that their employers are doing enough. And sixty two percent of employees said uh, that. That their, that their employers just don't seem to be doing enough. About, but 14% uh, said they think the company's efforts are enough. Yeah, so it's certainly mixed. And it, of course, it depends on what, you know, what level of role you're in, what type of company you're in, industry, et cetera. But yeah, overall, um, you know, what we're taking from this is that employers need to do a lot more to, to help their employees get through this time. It's tough, too, for anybody to see what anybody else is feeling and what they're doing. And so your study found that, uh, you know, almost half uh, said that the job of reducing workplace stress is a job for senior leaders and human resource departments. Meantime, just about 19% said it's up to the line managers. 
not a lot said that it's up to them. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it was about a third did, did say it came down to the individual, but yes, that is a minority in this group, Kevin. So, um, yeah, there, there's, there's clearly um, a belief that um, uh, the, the, the companies need to be doing more um, in, in helping people through this. And um, I think that what is happening here is a lot of people are not being vocal enough about this in their workplaces. So it is a two-way street, right? Companies can do all these different things and add on all these benefits, but if people aren't speaking up around how they're helping them and what they're actually using, then employers could go on just the way they have without actually addressing it. And then lo and behold, people start taking long-term leave or leaving roles because of that, even though they didn't Mm -hmm. bring it up. If nothing else, I mean, it just highlights the need for conversation. Yes. Exactly. It's all about communication. Yeah. It can't be just, just one-sided. The, the pandemic was a real game changer. It, it gave people a taste of what it was like to get a breakout from the, the, the rut that was their workday and maybe spend more time at home, maybe spend more time with families. And many employers were even having trouble getting their employees to come back to the office. Was this show, did this show up in this survey? Um, <clears throat> that wasn't part of this one. We've done many surveys around that, Kevin, and covered that extensively kind of, you know, 2020 to, to maybe end of 2022. But I think what you can draw from this is that people have got so used to a certain way of life, let's say at home. And now most employers, I would say probably 80% are in, in some way, shape or form, um, having a hybrid scheme where people do have to come back. So that has added to it as well. People have got used to, you know, a, a way of managing their life admin, whether it's family or, you know, personal things to do while working, um, not commuting, which is a massive one. Um, and, you know, we all know the the perils of commuting in the GTA, um, public transit or, or in, in, a, in a car. So, yeah, people have now had to adjust to that and navigating um, – that kind of journey again, all while adjusting to uh, a more expensive, you know, cost of living, commuting, all of those things together. So it's all coming in together at the same time. And I think that's why this has been, um, you know, thrown into the spotlight again in 2023. All right. Well, thank you for uh, talking with me. I appreciate it. No problem, Kevin. Martin Fox. Thanks for having me today. Martin Fox speaking to me from uh, uh, Robert Walters. Next, how peddling possibilities is opening doors and so much more. Here's Glenn Perkins. Kevin, you have this trip that you're making across the country. Before we talk about that, tell me your story. So I was um, a paramedic uh, before my injury. I was uh, in Toronto, a very active person. And uh, about 14 years ago, I was at my sister's wedding in Cuba and a large wave picked me up and dumped me uh, headfirst into the sand. And I was immediately paralyzed, um, leaving me as a quadriplegic. And since then, I've, my wife has started an activity-based therapy program called Walk It Off. And I just got better and better. And I got into hand cycling. And that's the, my quick story. You mentioned that the hand cycling, and this is part of this coast-to-coast-to-coast that you're doing the trip. You're going to be spending many hours in the saddle. Can you describe your bike to me? Sure. It's... Um, 
It attaches directly to my manual wheelchair. It uh, clips into a docking bar underneath, and I crank it with my uh, arms. I don't have hand function, so I have special hand grips um, that I can lock my wrists into, and then I pull back to brake. Um, and yeah, I'm, uh, I'm cranking the whole way with my biceps and shoulders because I, I don't have all my arm function. Certainly sounds like uh, a lot of work. Now, tell me about pedaling possibilities. I'd always wanted to bike across Canada, and I was biking with my friend Nikki quite a few days after she was done work. And um, the trip was actually her idea. She kind of just on a ride told me she had something important to ask, and then she blurted out, would you like to bike across Canada with me? And I was just thrilled. I, I almost crashed into her. And so we, we decided to bike across Canada and we wanted to know how it could also help other people. So we created pedaling possibilities. So we're establishing and sharing an accessible bike route um, and promoting activity-based therapy after injury and just trying to like lead by demonstration so see, people can see me out on the road, see me biking and hopefully get inspired to get moving. So that's the not-for-profit we created, uh, Pedaling Possibilities, to make the some even more good come from this trip. What's the reaction been so far from people who see you out on the road? Honestly, most drivers are courteous. It's been pretty good so far. I've had a, you know, a few aggressive drivers pretty close. But then also, I, there's been so many amazing people across Canada who are just so excited about the trip and want to help. When we meet them at campsites, they just want to do anything they can to help. Kevin, where can our listeners track the route and find out more information and perhaps even donate to the campaign? Yeah, that would be great. We're um, peddlingpossibilities.ca and we have a donate button there and it's getting our as across Canada. And then after, we're going to be um, using the funds to uh, fund people's activity-based therapy programs after injury. Yeah, it's much appreciated. Everyone's support is, is really making this trip happen. And this trip that you're on, it has so many levels, doesn't it? Yeah, part of the thing is the reason why we're going from the Atlantic to the Pacific is um, I was injured in the Atlantic and we said we'll start there and kind of make our way forward and head to the Pacific. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of levels for this trip, like overcoming what you're told you can do. And it's neat facing these challenges every day. It's hard, but it also, it makes you feel better. And it's already improving my life in so many ways. Kevin Mills, thank you for sharing your story with us today on The Feed. Uh, thank you very much for having me. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. After the break, producer Wayne Gretzky, the great one, scores again. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Gretzkys, Wayne and Janet, are now film producers. Jim Lang with the story of Mo Norman. For any golf fan or any serious golf fan, the name Mo Norman brings up a lot of emotions, uh, widely regarded by the legends like Tiger Woods and Sam Snead as maybe the greatest ball striker in the history of the sport. He has a fascinating life story, and now it's coming to the big screen to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by the producer and the brainchild behind this from David Carver Films. David Carver. David, how are you? Oh, I'm great, Jim. How are you doing? Pleasure to be on the phone with you. I, as I was saying, I'm, I'm making a movie about the legendary Mo Norman, and the legendary 
there for directing, and now I'm on the phone with the legendary Jim Lang. So it's a pretty good day in my in my life. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. I, I first heard about Mo Norman in the early mid '90s, as I was really getting into my sports broadcasting journalism career, and and then a few years later, there was a famous photo of. Nick Price and Nick Faldo and Fred Couples and basically the, the top six or seven golfers in the world staring at Mo Norman hitting a golf ball. And the, it, it's just become such a legend how he's revered amongst the Hall of Famers of golf, this this enigmatic gentleman. It just explain to the listeners why he was so loved and so revered and respected by the greatest of all time in the sport. Well, I think there was a point when, um, you know, he was kind of a, a bit of a, an odd duck and a you know, a bit of a loner and a bit of a misfit, and he really didn't fit into the sport. You know, he 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 decided to become the best in the game at a sport with a lot of etiquette and and tradition. And Mo was anti that. Um, <laughs> so I think he had a bit, a bit of a struggle, you know, in the early days of his career. And then I I believe in an example of leadership. Um, uh, Wally Uline from Titleist. When he gave Mo the $5,000 a month for the rest of his life for his contribution to the game of golf, I think it was kind of a, a moment where everybody sort of woke up and said, yeah, this guy this guy has contributed to the sport, and and, uh, and everybody kind of realized, oops, we, we missed it. We missed the, you know, the awesomeness that is and was Mo Norman. And then they all started to, everybody started to sort of, you know, gravitate and learn more about him. You know, both as a person, his journey, but also his his acumen on the golf course. And that photo you speak of, I wish we had more time because, you know, one of the great things about making a movie and researching is you get to know the the, the story behind that photo. And I know that's a bit of a tease to not be able to tell you what it is, but <laughs> we don't have enough time to set it up and, and give you the payoff. But it's a quite an interesting story. Mole Norman himself, the man. He obviously, I mean, this is just my amateur view, had some mental health issues, sleeping in sand traps, sleeping in his car, which is something that was just my misdiagnosed in the 50s and 60s, David. They just didn't understand mentally what he was going through. Well, it's my opinion, uh, based on the research I've done, is there's a syndrome called acquired savant syndrome. And it happens when you uh, suffer brain uh, trauma, if you have a brain injury. Um, it kind of uh, there's cases of people who who you know, have uh, head injury and have never painted before, and all of a sudden they can paint these incredible you know pieces of art, or they've never played the piano before and they can sit down and play piano. And according to Mo's twin sister Marie, he was a normal, rambunctious, typical kid until he was literally run over by a car, and she said from that moment. He went from, as an example, loving soaking in the bathtub for an hour every day to never showering again. He just he he didn't like the feel of water on his skin. Oh, he didn't like the feel of the sun on his skin. And it's my opinion that um, it, you know this was a, a result of the accident that he was in. I don't want to give away too much of the movie, but but um, so and that was back in nineteen thirty two or 33 and his parents didn't take him to the hospital despite him being run over by a car because as they said he seemed fine um and it was 1932 and you know they would have taken him to the hospital and 
someone would have said, give him an aspirin and put him in the tub, because that's what you did in 1932. Uh, Especially yeah. when Moe, after being run over, was out playing, having a snowball fight. So that's kind of where I think the the uh, the syndrome and the, the backstory of of his behavior. Um, it has a lot of a lot of similarities to autism, but I I don't think it was autism because he he was pretty much a normal kid before that accident. I'm speaking to David Carver. David Carver films behind the place I belong, the Mole Norman story, and it, you develop the project the script and this incredible story as a golfer and as a human being growing up through Kitchener in Canada. And then you, you start presenting it to people, hopefully to direct it in your wildest dreams. Did you ever think you have someone of the, the resume, the depth of resume as someone like Bruce Beresford? Well, I've always said that Mo as a character is an award nominating character. He is, he was before I became aware of him and I can't help that fact. He, he just, the character is an award-nominating character. We needed a award-nominating script, and we needed a director who can elicit award-nominating performances. And so, no, I never <laughs> dreamt that I'd ever, I, I, I never dreamt I'd, I'd get to where I am now with this film, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in it, and, and Bruce is, you know, Bruce is amazing. Um, I tell you, forget the fact that he makes very classy films and he, he, he does elicit award nominating performances from actors, you know, put all that aside. What I, I also like about him is that he doesn't play golf. Oh. And I've been on, in doing the research about Mo, I realized, you know, and our tagline is it's not about golf. It's about life. And Mo's journey transcends sports and golf, and there's a bigger, several bigger life lessons going on. And I like the fact that Bruce doesn't play the sport, so he can tell the story in a way of someone who doesn't play. So people who go to the theater who don't play golf and don't understand it will ideally, you know, connect with it more because it's being told by a director uh, and a writers who for the most part, don't play golf. And a director for listeners who maybe are not aware was behind Driving Miss Daisy and Tender Mercies and many, many others. Uh, filming will begin sometime in 2024, and fingers crossed all the labor issues in Hollywood are long over. Uh, casting it is going to be, to me, quite fascinating because I have to think there's a lot of real depth, talented, like artist actors who really want to sink their teeth into a role like this. I 100% agree. It's um, it, it's a it's a transformational role. It's it's a role that takes an actor from being the actor to being Mo Norman. Um, you know, much like you know Forrest Gump or um, you know I Am Sam. Mm. Um, yeah. You know the boatload of films that you know the actor just becomes that character. And and I agree with you. I think it's it's like. I tell you, Jim, one of the things I like is the, the script has a lot of tug at your heartstrings, almost make you cry, and then there's a lot of laughter, there's a lot of joy, there's tension. Um, it's, you know, I think it's pretty well laid out. I, I know this one of the things that caught my eye, that Wayne Gretzky and Janet Gretzky are co-producers. Did they, did they find out about the project and approach you? How did this come about? I had heard that they were... Involved, they were interested in helping to get a Mo Norman movie made. So I think it was like December, December 23rd, 
couple of years ago, I sent their agent an email and I thought, well, I'm not hearing back from them till you know, the middle of January because the industry shuts down. And then on December 27th, I was on the phone and a phone call came through and I looked at the caller ID and it said Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> and my first thought was, okay, how does Wayne Gretzky not have call block? You know? <laughs> and I'm on the phone with, and I, I'm on the phone. And I said, I said, Linda, I, I think I have to take this call. <laughs> and when I answered the call, it wasn't so much answering as a question. And the question was, Hello, <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> and there it was, Wayne and Janet on the other end saying, you know, they love the project, they love Mo. Wayne's father, Walter, was a was a big fan and friend of Mo's, and they they jumped on board and they're helping out wherever they can. Well, I mean, for you personally to, to get that kind of emotional response from Wayne and Janet Gretzky and how much it means to them, that has to be a good day for you. Uh, that, you know, I'm having a lot of good days, <laughs> I have to be honest, and that was certainly one of them. Um, you, you know, sending sending Bruce the the script on a Friday and getting up Saturday morning and seeing an email where he just said, when can we shoot this? Um, and then replying to say, can we do a Zoom call? He said, how about Sunday? We had a Zoom call Sunday. Monday, we made an offer to his agent. Tuesday and Wednesday, they countered. And Thursday, we had a deal. Less than a week from submitting the script to to uh, getting a paper, which I think in Hollywood has got to be a, a, a record. I was just thinking to myself, David, I've read all these stories about movies that take years for this kind of deal to come together, and it comes together in a week. Well, uh, I hate to burst that bubble, but uh, <laughs> I've been working on this for 25 years. <laughs> now it's been, you know, it's been on and off for, you know, for the first Oh, you know, 20, uh, 17, but I've been going pretty hardcore with it since around 2016. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a chess game for sure. And it's my first movie. And apparently according to Robin and David, uh, David Steinberg and Robin Todd, they, they seem to think I have some acumen for making a movie. And so here I am. You're definitely a likable individual. He is David Carver, the producer of David Carver Films, about to be part of something really special, the place I belong, the Mo Norman story, a story about a human being and a golfer that's going to touch a lot of heartstrings, filming beginning next year. Uh, David, I can't even begin to thank you enough for having the time to speak to us and speak to the listeners about this, and I cannot wait to see this uh, be put together and what it's going to be, and I'm sure I'm going to be choking back tears as I watch this unfold as well. Jeez, Jim, you just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> I'm going to have to get you promoting this for me. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome, David. A real pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Ah, great talent from right here in York Region next. Shaliza Bacchus with new music from Nicolina Botza. Well, I am joined now by, by, as I like to say, York Region Royalty. Love it. Nicolina Botso here with me <laughs> in studio, a good friend of ours here at the Region. And I, I will always say that we were your first radio interview, your you first were. the first station that played your song. Yeah, this was my radio debut. So guys. don't forget us. I mean, you're already big and shiny. But oh, don't forget us, okay? Always, I can never. I can <laughs> always never. come back. <laughs> and course. it's an honor to be catching up with you once again. And uh, we, we saw you in November. You did a little performance for us. A and performance. You've been quite busy since then. Yeah, I've been doing the thing. Been lots of writing and recording and, you know, 
doing little performances here and there and getting the job done. Yeah. It's been it's been amazing. And you've been working with a lot of new people mm-hmm. now outside of the people, your bubble that you have been working with in the past. Yeah. So I'm starting to kind of like find my team of writers. I'm really solidifying like my band. I'm getting like a whole team together and working on, you know, all the things that makes a person an artist, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You're ready for the big leagues. Ready. I'm trying. I'm getting there. I hope so. Um, but yeah, it's been really awesome. So how has that been different for you uh, working with this whole new team of people as opposed to maybe just your small group of maybe, I want to say like five people in yeah. the past? So, I mean, in the past, even writing wise, I think that's the biggest change so far as just being able to write in space with other people and other experienced writers. Mm -hmm. I used to write all my music on my own, just kind of like 2 a.m. situation in my notes. Like, so it's been so cool to just like sit in a room and exchange an energy with people and be all on the same level kind of and all want the same thing and be passionate Mm -hmm. about music and creating. So I think that's been like the most surreal experience since being on Idol is just getting to connect with new people and meet new people. And I I feel like it must have been, it's my, it probably continues to be such a learning experience for you. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I learn something new every day in this business and trying to make this like a full-time career and working on it. And I've learned so much. I'm continuing to learn so much. And I think it's just shaping me into like a stronger, more independent, like being artist, human, whatever you want to, however you want to put it. Well, I mean, you're still quite young. So, yeah. I mean, you've got a lot of time to find your footing, but, and I honestly, honestly, I forget how old you are sometimes. You're only 20. I'm a little 20 year old. Yeah, guys. like, girl, you better get it. You've <laughs> accomplished a lot more at this this age than, than a lot of people have at my age, which. Well, I mean, hey, everyone has different journeys. So, in my mind, my stuff came to me earlier in yeah. life, but you never know. Like, there's yeah. so many different opportunities for everyone out there. So. Yeah, and you've been you've been yeah. working so hard. Like the work ethic is Thank is a hundred percent. And you just released this new song called Way Out. Why mm-hmm. don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So Way Out is a song kind of focused around uh, mental health and struggling with your mental health and you know, really looking for that light at the end of the tunnel and looking for a way out, hence the title mm-hmm. of the song. Um and it was my a song that came out of like my first writing session ever that was with experienced writers and people that have kind of done the thing and paid their dues and been yeah. working in this industry. And it is such a amazing feeling to be able to be vulnerable and have such a positive response from people. Yes. And it's it's hard. I mean, I mentioned this last week when we were talking that mm-hmm. it's hard to leave such a vulnerable side of you out there for everyone to see and to just feel vulnerable. Yeah. Oh, of course. I feel like v- being vulnerable is like one of the hardest things to do as a human. Yeah. So you don't want to be judged for how you feel or, you know, you want to keep it yourself and deal with it. But at the end of the day, I think if you can be vulnerable and be open in a space that feels safe and mm-hmm. feels warm and all the things, I feel like it's so amazing. And it's just a beautiful experience to be able to do that. Yes. And I love that you're sharing that with people and that you're opening up with people. But I mean, there must be another side to it, if you don't mind my asking. I mean, there's trolls and there are negative oh, people with negative energy. How do you deal with that? I mean, I just try and look at the big picture when stuff like that happens. There's always going to be someone who doesn't like what you're doing or doesn't like how you look or what you're wearing or whatever. And that's unfortunately part of the job and a part of being online and an influencer, a musician, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, whatever you're doing online. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, again, to look at the big picture and just be like, in the long run, I'm helping people, whether that be two people or 2,000 people or whatever it is. So as long as I'm connecting and as long as people are feeling safe within my art and within my craft, I'm happy. Yes. I mean, that is the best way to look at it. It really yeah. is. It really is. And I love that you have such a positive attitude oh, headed into all of this because it's it's hard, especially at, I'm going to say it again, someone at your mm-hmm. of your un- young age 
it's hard to navigate these yeah. things and deal with people. And now Idol, I feel, has opened so many doors yeah. for you. And what do you think has been your biggest takeaway? I know it's been a while since you've been on the show, sure. but how have you translated what you learned there into what you're doing now? Yeah, well, I mean, I've learned a lot by being on the show um, and just performing every week and working with a band and working with other musicians. Um, and I think the biggest thing I took away is just to like trust myself more. Mm -hmm. And I think I said this, if we've ever talked about this before, but that has been like the biggest lesson I think I've learned, period, is just to trust my gut, trust myself, know what I'm capable of, believe in yourself. Like on the show, I had moments where I was like, oh my God, this huge note is coming up and I'm like, I don't think it's going to happen. So I would just dodge it last minute or, uh, I don't know, song choices that maybe mm -hmm. I switched around last minute as well. Or, you know, the producer saying, hey, sing this song instead. And I was like, oh my God, I can't. Yeah. And it was just, you know, there was a lot of uh, self-doubt and maybe low self-esteem in some areas. But I think since being on the show and being comfortable in my own being, I know that I can trust myself. Yes. And I know what I can do. And I play to my strengths. And I try to work on myself every day. And you know what? At the end of the day, nobody's got you like you've got you. Exactly. You know? Me, myself and I, girl. <laughs> so yes. I, I love that you're coming into into yourself in that way. So yeah. it, you should be really, really proud of yourself. Well, thank you. No, I, I mean, I am. I I feel like I've put in lots of work since been, being on the show. And um, I'm, I'm happy. I'm proud of myself for that because before the show, I was just like, yeah, let me just like sing in my room for five yeah. minutes and see what happens. So, yeah. Yeah. Complete, uh, complete 360 yeah, on that. For real. Yeah, for real. And you're just, you're radiating positivity and, you. and light. And we're so happy about that. So what's next for you now that you've released Way Out? You're looking at some shows, some more music. Yeah, all of the above. Doing some shows, hopefully. Um, coming up, I have some in August. Hopefully one in September downtown. We'll do another like little velvet moment, Holla. but maybe a different venue. Um, and then new music this fall, for sure. I'll have some stuff out. And then top of next year, maybe we'll have a little little project coming. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, I can see her winking over there. Yeah, a little bit, a <laughs> little bit. Nicolina Bozzo, York Region's own Our Star. So happy to have you. So happy to be here. Thank you so much. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.